Hello and welcome back to SLT Time. This is episode five. We are really going through the week so quickly. Um, last week we discussed workplace conversations about race and guest speaker Nazia Rizwan was here. Um, we received so many tweets in response to the episode and would like to share a few that stood out. The first tweet that we would like to share is by um, Sai Bangera, so at Bangera Sai. My thoughts, um, fab advice by Nazia Rizwan SLT on career progression and workplace culture. Building cultural competence is an ongoing process and cultural differences do influence engagement during meetings but shouldn't pose as barriers and being soft-spoken is not a weakness. So those were some of the reflections that Sai um, shared with us. So thank you Sai. Another tweet by inclusionista underscore one, um, so that's Aiden Sufi. Another brilliant podcast from SLT Time with Nazia Rizwan SLT. Thank you for raising such important points, which includes cultural norms and how we relate to elders or people in authority, importance of being support community at work and how to deal with microaggressions and ensuring work socials are inclusive to all. It shouldn't be left to the person who is excluded to speak up. We should make sure that the social is not in a pub or on a Friday if that excludes team members of different faiths. As for speaking out about microaggressions, that takes courage. I think there needs to be more training within the profession on what microaggressions are, how damaging they can be, and how to respond when a colleague tells you of their experiences of them. Thank you again for this important work. Thanks, Aiden, for your tweets. Um, and lastly, by Henny underscore Bernstein. Really enjoyed this week's SLT time episode, learning lots. Also great advice on banding and job progression from Nazia, making me feel better about my current position as well as motivated to take the next steps. Also, the comment about if staff go to the pub on a Friday night and you won't do that, you aren't part of the clique. That's massively my problem and I struggle with that a lot. Sadly, telling people my reason hasn't changed anything. Um, thanks for sharing us uh, sharing that with us Henny because um, I'm sure a lot of people also feel the same um, being the odd one out in terms of like workplace cliques and I think that's something that we can um, continue the conversation in further episodes as well in terms of um, workplace culture whether that's about racial biases or exclusion so thank you. So this week's episode is focusing on cultural competency, what it is in theory, our experiences of being taught and how we'd like to see it being implemented in real life practice. From SLT time, we have our hosts, which are Ilya, Veronica, Suleka, Taiba, and myself. Um, and we have our three amazing guests, which are Sharon, Mariam, and Marine. Hi everyone, I'm Sharon Ajay Nicol, and I am a speech and language therapist working with adults. Um, currently, I work in private practice, but I have worked in the NHS for about 15 years. And from September, I will be joining um, the University of Greenwich and Canterbury Christchurch course as a senior lecturer. Hi, my name is Mehreen. I'm an NQT and I work in a private practice. I'm doing a mixed post, so I work with both pediatric and adult population, and primarily I work in secondary schools. Hi, I'm Mariam. Um, I'm a speech and language therapist, work with children under five mainly. Um, I work in the NHS and, and I've done that for about four-ish years now, nearly four years. Um, I've only ever worked in the NHS, so kind of just, yeah, that's where all of my experiences are. We're all becoming experts on uh, podcast introductions recently, isn't it? We all say when we get up. So, um, yeah, thank you all for joining us. Um, we're really, really um, lucky to have you all here. 
me and Mehreen go way back because we um, actually did the course together. We were the same cohort at City. So nice to see you, girl. Um, okay. <laughs> so um, I'm just going to give um, a sort of brief overview um, to provide a little bit of context into the reason that why we're having this discussion. Um, I actually gave this talk in a bit more depth at Sheffield Uni a few weeks ago and the questions that I got from the SLT to Bs that I spoke to were really incredible and they were so engaged and while that made me really glad, it also made me really disappointed at how this was the first time they had been given this information um, and how shocking it was for them to instigate these type of conversations. Um, so anyway, I thought it was really important to start the discussion around cultural competency by first having an overview of the context of the country that we live in. Um, so Britain has a history of colonization. That, we all know that, that's a fact. But how does that impact the cultural makeup of the society that we live in now and the society that we're all working in as speech therapists? Col colonization um, was a system and uh, governance which basically meant that anybody who was not white was inferior. There was slavery, oppression, cultures were destroyed, um, places were uh, ripped apart, uh, lots of people were displaced, um, causing forced migration, uh, pre-existing political, social and economic structures were basically destroyed and uh, recreated into a Western framework. Um, and then obviously we've got this sort of emigrating uh, demographic of migrant communities in Britain. We've got um, an increase of second generation, first and second generation um, young people. So parents who came from abroad moved here and then their kids were born here who are navigating like really complex identities, being from a migrant family and their parents seeing the world through a particular lens, but them now having to navigate where their Britishness fits in that. Um, and I think that um, not having that understanding is really detrimental to us as healthcare workers because um, how can you really help a population that you don't even understand the context in which they are thinking and viewing the world? Um, and this is not just in terms of identity, um, which is vital, but also the way attitudes and the way uh, these communities are towards healthcare towards their own health literacy, to work, towards their perception of self, the, the importance that they put on their health and going to seek help for problems that they have. These are all things which are impacted by a historical um, issue of inferiority and, um, you know, uh, belief, uh, systemic belief that we are not worthy or we are below uh, white people, basically. And then within that, there's obviously intersectionality and how complex it all is and everybody's varying experiences, um, everyone's varying family makeups, communities, support networks. It, it's so complex. And I know that's very overwhelming for universities to approach because it's so complex. But I think uh, what I would love to uh, talk about amongst us is how we can incorporate this sort of really basic uh, understanding of community basically uh, within our teaching at university. Um, also really quickly I've just got some facts um, on ethnic diversity 
within the UK. This is from the Gov National Statistics. Um, so I'm sure it's no surprise that 40.2% of residents in London identify as BAME. Um, that is, we don't have speech therapy statistics, but we have NHS statistics that show that we, our workforce is not representative of that, especially in London. 13.4% um, of people are born outside of the UK that live across England. Um, also, there are literal stats that show that black and ethnic minority people are more likely to experience deprivation and have poorer health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And across schools in London, there are over 300 languages spoken. So these are stats from like 2011, and I'm sure more stats have been made now. Um, so yeah, that's the sort of context and overview that I think it's really important to touch on um, because we're not actually touching on this at university, I think, not, not enough and not in the depth that we need to be. Um, so I think the first question I want to put out is what is your experience of cultural competent education um, from your experience at university in the speech therapy course or before or after that? What is your kind of personal experiences with that? Just to say, I think the my experience of being taught about culture at uni was basically non-existent. Um, um, and I think that that in itself created a, a very interesting vacuum um, for me to fill for myself um, and, and kind of inadvertently facilitated a period of um, significant, growth, actually, significant growth that came out of significant struggle and significant isolation and kind of feeling um, deeply marginalized. In fact, it was probably my very first experience of being confronted with my minority status. And just for a bit of context, I was at the time a visible Muslim woman, so I used to wear a headscarf when I was trained, when I was on the course. And I think, yeah, it, it just really, it was quite confronting, probably the best way of describing it. It just really made me realize that I am actually a, um, having sort of, sort of, you know, been born and raised in London, um, for the majority of my life, it was, yeah, just the first, first time in my life I was in a room where I was the only person of colour. That had never happened to me ever before. So, um, yeah, deeply confronting, um, um, deeply challenging, but also facilitating some serious interpersonal growth, um, for which I am tremendously grateful. I mean, from my point of view, I, so I was training, you know, back in from 2000 to 2004, so quite a long time ago, and I'd like to hope that things have changed to some degree. But um, from, I think, at the time, there was very much a, a sense of, like, confusion between, like, bilingualism and culture and kind of quite a lot of emphasis on kind of working with people that are bilingual. And maybe the odd little kind of reference to, to cultural expectations of, of different minority groups but I always felt that it was the two things were kind of put together and lumped together as one like but, but, but as we all know and as you know over, over the years and as the discussions have continued like more recently that it's very very two very different things so I think that's one thing that um on reflection I look back at my uni university and just kind of um, days and just think that that kind of you know that separation needs to be there they're two different things um and also, I think the, the few times that um, things were touched on, I always used to think it, it would always come across quite negative. So things would be said like, oh, um, you know, if talking about BAME people, it would be sort of seen as, oh, they're hard to reach group or um, its expectations might be sort of different or they might not engage or it just, if there was a reference to cultural things, I felt it was all, you know, inadvertently, I'm not, I'm sure it wasn't, you know, 
conscious and on purpose but it, it kind of I felt did cultural things always seem to get framed in a slightly negative perspective as opposed to kind of looking at it as well um what what do we do like what can we do to engage like what what is it that's making it them, them kind of not attend or whatever or or even seeing the positives like I've always found that um people from often blame people are slightly more compliant because they have that kind of seeing you as the expert and kind of so why isn't it framed in the positive are they more why so I kind of the few times that I do think um cultures reference that there can be sort of slight negative kind of negativity to the way it's framed but overall I think um, my reflection is that the two things are kind of sometimes get lumped together and need to be kind of really differentiated between someone's language pure language thing um, you know speaking more, more than one language or English as an additional language and what is someone's culture that's so much richer than just language um, so so yeah that would be kind of in a nutshell my my first thoughts on that one I think it's so interesting that you mentioned that being negative because now I'm looking back and thinking about it. I can't remember any time that culture was actually mentioned in a positive light. So I feel like even if uh, um, I'm an NQT but and just graduated last year, I feel like the same experience still. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of culture being addressed in uni, I think there was, I was just like make brainstorming and I think there's like three different ways. One was in um, clinical exams where they wrote like a different ethnic name. Two was when they told us to change like the color of the person in the pictures. And the last time, um, I think at the end of um, when Ilya and I um, were in, on the course, we had a course on cultural competencies, which I think was like um, one of the, just during our professional development courses. And I, they did, I just actually looked back at the course to see what was covered. And I do think that they attempted to at least talk about what culture was, talk about being reflective about the um, experience. And I've noticed from that, they talked a lot about in relation to a service user rather than to the profession itself in terms of our colleagues. So I felt like that's something that could really work on a bit more in terms of professional development. But I feel like we all do have similar experiences regardless of which university we went to. I think um, with what you guys have said about um, it being seen in a um, sort of a negative, very negative tones, for me it was noticing that any times like DNAs were mentioned, like do not attend or do not attendees were mentioned, um, it was always to do with um, black and ethnic minority communities. So like, oh, why did this family with like six children, why did the mom not attend with the child? And it was like, oh, maybe they just have a different view on timekeeping. And I was like, this is this is the extent of the cultural competency. I just, I did, for me, I, it was really frustrating. And I think what, what Mariam said about it being very confronting for her, for me, I think it was very an opposite experience. I was growing up in a very white area, in a very white school, primary school and secondary. So that, that development of realizing I was different was very slow as opposed to very like sudden. So when I got to university, I was really frustrated throughout all of these sessions of cultural competency teaching, because for me, I was thinking from the perspective of someone who was white and middle class, who has never, ever had to ask or think about these questions. And I was trying to see the teaching from their point of view. And I found it just wasn't tapping in. It wasn't getting to the foundation. It was getting to the right to the bottom, like bottom up approach. It was almost assuming they would understand all these nuances that were being talked about and it just I just don't think it was. I say that I think that it should be from the beginning of university and like integrated within 
all the teachings and not just added on as we've said with like bilingualism I think that any every aspect of learning that we have there should always be culture involved because our the people that we serve are so diverse and I think a lot especially as most of um, clinicians are from a white middle class background and a lot of the time they relate culture to a colour and with different colours you have different cultures so like in India there's so many different cultures within India and I think people are not like as someone who's white they might just think there's one culture like monocultural but and I don't think there's an awareness that there's more cultures to a country than just it being monocultural and that teaching should be added on and supported when it's for all all teaching I think that it can go across all modalities yeah so um I uh, was at university from 2008 to 2012 and there was absolutely no cultural teaching at all um, and that really surprised me actually because I was at university in Leicester which actually has an ethnic majority so over 50% of the population of Leicester is BAME so I was really surprised at how there was literally nothing on cultural competency when we were basically like a lot of the service users were BAME so I do feel like we should have had um, a lot of teaching on that and um, yeah it really surprised me but I know a lot of people are saying also that bilingualism and culture should be two different things but um, I do think we should separate them but also there is a place for them to be combined as well because you know language and culture is like inextricably linked um, so I think we do need to talk about that as well so you know you have to separate certain parts but other parts do have to be combined you know because um, even just the way that children learn language you know um, from the very beginning language socialization there's different um, language socialization strategies for different cultures so I do think it's really important to look at those things as well. A lot of the time when we talk about culture it's like we everyone who isn't white has a culture but it's really important to also like, acknowledge that British English white people have their own culture we're sort of trying to assimilate with that while we're on the course um and fit in and we're always like the other um you know oh these kinds of people behave in this way and people from that country behave in that way but actually how do white british people behave we're not no one talks about that it's like they're the baseline and all of us are different to that we're veering off um and i think that might be more to do with the workplace but also um, I think at university um, and on placement as well it's kind of like having to change our practice but our practice should be including all cultures as opposed to when you see a Somali family or a, a family from Pakistan that you'll behave in a particular way or they're more used to this way of working um, so I think it's acknowledging that everyone has a culture it's not in my culture to um, drink a cup of tea however many times a day um that's something that I had to learn about when I started working as a speech and language therapist I was sort of like well I've had one today like, <laughs> but just genuinely things like that are not in my culture and I think maybe for some people but for my family culture um we just don't do that and I think a lot of things are we just have to pick up 
and I think speech and language therapists when we're working and we're communication specialists and we know all about this you they should be able to pick this up and I think at uni we have they have that responsibility to sort of incorporate that as Andrew was saying and really try and foster that curiosity about other people's culture. Yeah definitely and I think like what you're saying about um, acknowledging that there is a white British culture actually um, we as people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds don't really have a choice in having that self-awareness of our culture and our differences but actually growing up uh, white privilege or whatever you're not really confronted with that level of self-reflection and um, I, th I think cultural competency education doesn't necessarily need to be you sitting in a room learning okay this is how this community does this 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 it begins with that self-reflection of what is it that makes up my cultural makeup and my views and my privilege and how does that impact the way that I view the world and I'm interacting with people and I think until we're fostering that level of self-reflection from the course um, as health professionals um, then when you're not able to really understand others and how others view the world because you're not even worked out which lens you're viewing yours in so I, I just feel like we do a lot of talk about reflecting and self-development all that in the course but it's not put in this context in the right way um it's more about sort of clinical skill reflection but but the whole point of the um person what's, what's that word personable nature of our career um should also incorporate that I think and we should be given that space to do that in university no, I completely agree with you there. I remember um, on my course having to um, video ourselves communicating with a, 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 like, you know, a colleague and then, you know, really go back and analyse and like, you know, write a whole essay about our communication style and, you know, what we do, you know, who uses body language, who's like, really proper like reflection. I'm just thinking, you know, but that level of depth needs to be applied to other elements as well. You know, what am I bringing, especially, you know, people that work with adults, you know, kind of you working with a peer and somebody's sometimes older than you and just, you know, what am I bringing into this therapeutic relationship in terms of my biases, my thoughts, my understanding of them as a person, their identity. And I think, you know, that exactly what you said, we need to spend time doing the course with understanding yeah, our clinical skills, our communication skills, but also us as a person and what we're going to be bringing to our relationships with our with parents and everything else. Um, and I think once you've got to that level, then actually it doesn't matter whether it's white culture, Asian culture, black culture, because you've kind of, you just apply it to everyone. Like you want to get to know everybody, every individual that you're working with, you'll get to know them as a person and understand what you're bringing and what they're like. But it doesn't even, you don't even, because you don't want it to be like a kind of this thing of, oh, I've got to think of the person's culture. And, you know, it needs to be something that's natural that we think of as holistic. When we think of holistic and person-centered care, this just comes into it anyway, regardless of the person's color or what language they speak, whatever, it's just applied generally. And as and just seen as part of holistic when we talk about holistic care or whatever, it's just part of it. So I think it, it needs to be that first that self analysis, and then from there, just something that's incorporated into everything that we do. And it, it just that you know eventually become a natural thing that it's just applied to what you do as in that in with, with everyone that you see. Yeah, I think that's a 
great point Sharon and I think it reminded me of um I've been on placement a few times now and I've been on like shadowing um you know SLTs a few times and a, f a lot of times I've gone into the staff room and I found a folder that sort of gives like a rule of thumb or like a basic description of what like Muslim families do or believe in or what African families do and believe in and for me I just think it's so almost reductionist sometimes like I understand where the intention is coming from and I understand what the what the point of it is but like you said without that self-analysis without adopting that um sort of self-awareness these sort of documents are re reducing people to stereotypes because not every subgroup that we're talking about or cultural group is homogenous me as a Muslim family might be completely different to Ilya as a Muslim family do you know what I mean so I think this is the idea of what I would want um, to change uh, in terms of cultural competency teaching is that I think learning has to be slow and repetitive. Having one hour cultural competency sessions in a year, which was what my experience was, it was one hour in one module per year over the three years and that was it. But it's just not enough. This idea of self-analysis and self-awareness has to come from continuous probing continuous work and um, that's what I would like to see improvement in, in cultural competency from from everything that we've discussed so far. I think you made a really good point about being self-reflective in the way that we interact with the culture regardless of being the white British culture because I actually moved to the country you know, UK about two days before I started the program and I went right into a Delta Q and I didn't know much about British culture so a lot of it I had to be aware about what I was doing that was probably maybe not appropriate or maybe need to be changed for example I kept calling pants for trousers and I realized that's not okay here so there's <laughs> a lot that I had to reflect on what I was doing and I think that's actually a really good skill because it taught me to really just learn to ask my um, clients and my patients about their culture. So for example, simply, what do you do in the afternoon? How do you spend your days? How do you spend your weekends? Because that's part of your culture. And I didn't know really in the area that I was how people do that. And now that I'm in secondary school and a completely different community, I've learned to do the same thing, just having those discussions. So not reducing it, oh, African families do this, but rather, how does your weekends look? What do you do? And just being comfortable having that conversation. And that skill definitely could have been taught more at university. So just really quickly, I feel like this whole idea of, um, you know, the intention is there and the intention is a good one where we're trying to sort of give people these rule of thumbs to think, oh yeah, the Pakistani or the Muslim families don't like the pigs, so make sure you put them away, that sort of thing. I think, like, I think sometimes it's okay to call a spade a spade. And actually, I think that that is just ignorance and it's coming from a place of fear. I think we, um, I think generally within, uh, you know, institutional establishments, it's okay to acknowledge that we do exist in a culture that promotes kind of a single normative uh, pattern and way of thought. You know, we are taught within education, particularly, you know, including university, that there is this sort of universality that we are learning about. And that's the sort of the norm. And then there will be exceptions to that. To that kind of universal idea and that norm every once in a while you know every once in a while you have like a, a bilingual family so make sure you know a little bit about that you know every now and again you'll have like people who, who look different they're a bit brown blah, blah, blah. and so i think it's 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 slightly um and i think i, I haven't been in any other um space where that's highlighted or as prominent as it is in speech and language therapy and I think that's very reflective of the people who um, design and and teach these courses I think 
think it's really, really apparent that actually um, they are all they are all from that kind of universal norm, if you like. They they are they are coming from that singularity of, of viewpoint. Um, but I think it's it's a huge huge problem because actually we the the, the pedagogy, if you like almost needs just rethinking. I think we actually need to have some space and some commitment to reimagining what this needs to look like. Um, because I think, you know, it, it, it's, it's not really creating a workforce that has the skills required to, to kind of navigate um, working with the population they exist in, in a, in a, in a way that actually supports people to meaningfully engage with and access services. And I think that having that folder in the staff room comes from that, that, that acknowledgement on some level that actually we don't have the skills to work with these people meaningfully. Here is one stab at it. Um, but actually, I don't think it's meaningful enough. And I think that's where the kind of the institu ed educational institutions have a really um, pivotal role, because that's, that's, that, that's that place where people are, um, there is an expectation that we are here to learn. And I think depending on how that course is designed and what's covered in that course is uh, really just a testament to the, the society that we live in because that those are choices that are made by someone somewhere about what goes on the curriculum mm -hmm. so i think unless there is an acknowledgement at that level that this is an important consideration for the future workforce um i think um change is going to be marginal if at all yeah no. definitely i mean it's definitely down to the people who are creating the courses I actually think it's probably down to individual universities because I know the course is, um, you know, what's studied as part of the course does vary from university to university. Like I know at the University of Reading, they do like a whole module, like 10, 11 weeks on bilingualism. But, you know, a lot of other universities, they don't do anything. So I think it's down to maybe the lecturers, you know, collaborating together and um, deciding what they need to teach. So... Um, yeah, it must just be down to, you know, who's working at the university and, you know, which direction they want to take things. Because if there were lecturers that really cared about cultural competency, then I'm sure they would be able to, you know, create a module around that. So I guess, you know, we have to look really at the staff at the universities and, um, you know, ask them why they are not creating such courses. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, I think there is a core kind of component that is provided by like RCSRT about what has to be covered in the course. And then, like you say, a lot of it in terms of how you teach that comes from the individual interests from a lot of um, the, the, the lecturers. So if they have a particular, if somebody has it, you know, you know as, as I go into lecturing now, obviously, I'm going to have a particular interest in, you know, aphasia and, you know, di the, the diversity discussion as well. So you might find that, you know, but I think you're right. I think there is an element of individual institution, but I think there probably could be a bit more of a discussion with whoever's forming that framework of what has to be covered in an SLT course, which that, and that, that, that does exist somewhere, needs to make it much more emphasis that cultural competency needs to form, like everybody has to get taught, you know, on aphasia or whatever, like those things, it needs to be in there, I think. Um, 
and then I guess from then universities will feel obliged to look at how they're going to cover that and um, you know and how it's going to be embedded in, in what they're teaching so I think it's a bit of both but yeah I definitely agree that you know you'll find courses where people have a particular interest and then you see that things are covered in a lot of depth and then somewhere else you don't get so much because it depends on who's teaching there but I think a framework could exist that makes it more compulsory for universities to cover certain things. So, yeah, you touched on a really good point there, Sharon, about um, that you will come into teaching now from having that personal experience and interest in uh, embedding culture into what you teach. Um, and I think that's so important. And I would love to kind of hear um, what your approach would be to your teaching uh, coming from this perspective. Um, but before that, I just wanted to make a point. I think um, Anne mentioned about embedding cultural uh, competency from the very beginning of the course into everything that we do. Um, I think that is so, so doable. That, that's not completely an outrageous thought to put out there to universities and courses. Really simple things. Um, so things like, for example, we get drilled into us um, ICF, but why is it we never consider, for example, creating goals from ICF that are culturally relevant to the patient that you're working in? For example, um, like uh, a participation goal about uh, attending group prayer or um, visiting family and stuff like that, which are culturally relevant to the person that you're working with. But when nothing that we're taught is ever put into that cultural context, where I think that it can be um, from the beginning, uh, everything, every framework, every um, evidence, even though there's no evidence behind culture, there's not a lot of research or evidence done on actual, you know, um, cultural experiences. I think that it's not such an, a huge ask to translate that into that narrative. Um, it's just about who's going to do it, who at the university is going to take that responsibility because it is extra work for them and nobody wants to do that um so yeah I would love to hear kind of what your approach would be Sharon yeah and obviously I mean I haven't started the role yet and it's hard but I think I think for me it's about if we just always start from the foundation of who is my client who is this child who is this adult I don't think you necessarily have to it won't be as hard to teach this because if, if we start from an element of get to know that person that's in front of you or that family or you know then actually everything should comes from that so I think my approach is very much about designing your therapy or even your assessment session from what you find out you know often we kind of go in with the assessment already planned or you've got the referral that says they've got x y and z so I'm going to go in with excellent you know assessment but actually spending that first bit of time getting to know the person and and getting to find out about them including questions about their culture and I guess it's about supporting students to know what kind of questions to ask to get this information out and then designing from there what you need to do with what what you need to find out what assessments you might need to do and kind of how treatment goals kind of link in with that, that them as a person and what they what their identity is but I also think it's quite important in the history taking you know like um often there's like these forms that are kind of quite generic about you know the background history and medical history but I, you know I always ask things like you know what do you know about speech and language therapy have you because like, I, I find that question quite interesting especially because you know like I say I work with adults who've had stroke and it's really interesting some of the answers you get and sometimes that helps 
kind of frame that cultural discussion and then kind of be like, oh, because they think, you know, they think of a speech and language deficit to do with kind of speaking, better, you know, like the English accent better or, you know, and it just kind of, so I, I think, you know, it's, there's so many elements I can think of where I've learned along the way, kind of how to work certain things, like kind of just not just taking the kind of paper kind of form, but just actually getting to know somebody, asking them their, their kind of where, where they're coming from in terms of their experiences of speech and language therapy or what they think which is going to, what do you think speech therapy is going to be like? What do you think we're going to do? Um, and also building that foundation of when you see somebody and we talk about holistic care and we talk about person-centred goals, that includes the culture all the time so it's not just you know what's wrong with them from a speech and language therapy point of view it includes culture I don't think it's about book stuff I don't think it's about like oh, you know everything that happens in this culture everything happens in that like it's about just being at supporting students to ask the right question to embed that into what they're doing and to not go in with any assumptions you go in and you ask first and then you design from there. I think it's, I think sometimes you probably do things slightly the other way around and kind of coming in with our expertise and then kind of trying to make the person, what they say, fit into what we already had planned to do. But I guess if you go in from that approach, then things like that, the fact that they go to prayer and things like that would hopefully come up. Um, so yeah, I think it's Yeah, I think that's I, really good. Yeah, I think that's really good. I mean, um, it would really help, you know, get rid of the stereotype that we're taught about you know like all Muslims do this and all Asians are like this because you know if you go in with that um, those questions in the case history then you're going to really get to understand the client and um, yeah that will hopefully stop you um, you know getting into any of those stereotypes and um, what you said Mariam earlier on about um, you know removing the pigs that actually um I did actually see that happen on one of my placements actually um and now that you've said it I'm wondering whether that was an actual thing or whether it was just the um therapist you know stereotyping because I was working with um a deaf child and um the speech therapist who was regularly there my placement supervisor she was like we have to remove the pig because he gets really really you know he, he really hates pigs so we just have to remove the pigs from this you know box of stuff before we work with him and I'm thinking well I never saw him react to a pig so I'm thinking did he really have that strong a reaction to a pig or was it just because it was her stereotype of how he was going to react the exact exact same thing happened to me where a speech and language therapist told me to remove something because I was a Muslim client that I was working with she was like you can just remove the pigs and I was like what but why I said there's literally no reason why we'd want to do like why we would have to do that um it's not offensive to us but I had the same thing um with when I had clients from who were Jewish as well where they someone told me oh make sure you don't use these kind of pictures because that's offensive but I so it would just make much more sense if we just ask the clients themselves and parents. It's funny what things people are conscious about being, um, you know, careful with and what they're not, like blatant things that are just rude, that they just don't, don't think twice about. I think just to pick up on something that Sharon um, mentioned, so in terms of, you know, how helpful is it for people to just almost have like this encyclopedic knowledge about, you know, that culture and that culture and that culture. It, it's it's slightly, and also I think, um, Ilya, just going back to how you introduced the podcast, I think thinking about the context of the UK and the nature of kind of migration and, and, and now with, with kind of second, third, fourth generation in immigrant communities, 
how relevant are some of those facts and information is, is, is another conversation that needs to be had. Um, so I think actually what we is perhaps more, you know, if, if we're thinking about universities who are teaching these courses with time constraints and, and choices that need to be made, essentially, I think a much more useful approach to um, some of that is perhaps, think, perhaps thinking about kind of structural vulnerabilities and making sure that, our, that the future of, the, of, of our profession has a really good grasp of what, for example, some structural vulnerabilities might look like in the UK and, and in, our, in our context, you know, thinking about like health outcomes um, and how they are impacted by kind of poverty, inequality, discrimination, um, and, and kind of how engagement with, with our services will um, be definitely will be working with some of the most vulnerable marginalized groups in society you know the fact that there is this huge I mean I work with children so that's where the majority of my kind of knowledge and information lies but there's huge overlap with sort of language and communication needs and socioeconomic deprivation and disparities um, and so it's it's almost inevitable that you know for any speech therapist in the UK who's practicing is going to be working with some of the most disadvantaged communities in in the country so I just I, I can't understand why that is that isn't a priority in terms of the curriculum um, and I think that the you know one of the huge but we are essentially at the moment the status quo is we are creating professionals who are who are at that level where they're putting the pigs away I mean you know and I, I think that's really illustrative of kind of where we're at but what's our starting point um, and I think it's 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 a sad one but it's it's a realistic one um and so actually i think if, if anything can change um can we be thinking about producing clinicians and 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 speech therapists who are kind of have the ability and the capacity to sort of critically self-reflect um and you know we and again these are the, some of these things are already they exist within our profession within our training they're just not being utilized to their full capacity i remember having to write reflective logs as part of my uh, whilst I was on the course and having to reflect on various issues um, uh, but I think again it's what's important to be reflecting on needs to really be reflected on and I think at the moment that's a really big gap um, and I think again part of the issue here again from, from you know my limited uh, knowledge and, and kind of just my own personal experience I guess is the the will to do some of that thinking and work I'm not sure is there because I think if you have a, a, a kind of a majority white profession, majority white teaching staff, I can't remember being on the course whilst I was training and seeing a single other person of colour in terms of the faculty that taught me. Um, who is there to do some of that? That Who is at the table who's going to ask those difficult questions? Who is going to be that critical friend and say, hey, what have we thought about X, Y, or Z? Um, and, you know, until we're ready to have some of those people present in the room um, and be at that decision-making table, I can't see um, change happening, really, because we haven't got the right minds where they need to be. We haven't got the people where they need to be to be asking those questions so we can mobilise change in an effective way. We're just paying it lip service. Yeah, I guess that's why it has to be more kind of compulsory and coming from, from the RCSLT, because, you know, if it's compulsory, then the universities are going to have to do it. You know, we, they won't have to wait until someone that is, you know, at the university thinks it's important. I mean, this needs to be compulsory now, and universities need to start thinking about it right away, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think it should be, you know, more commonplace for us to have um, service users. So we obviously often you get somebody come into your university like to let who's got 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 a speech difficulty or their child has or but you know more common that we ask BAME people to come in and talk about the experiences positive and negative of of having speech and language therapy how did their cultural impact on how they progressed and how how they worked or didn't it didn't work I think those kind of stories hearing it from actual service users that have said that come in and say you know actually my child came in and I, you know this was removed and I felt a bit offended or whatever like hearing it from I think that would be a good place is like to try and engage more like not just somebody who's got this someone's got this condition so they've come in to talk to you but someone's got this condition and they come from this angle of um, bringing their story I mean I think they could we could do a bit more research in this you know often it's about demonstrating it makes a difference if we can if we can have some data that says the outcomes were better because culture was embedded in this person's speech and language therapy process or this you know these many people had SLT without any consideration of culture these are people did and it there's actually some tangible things I think those kind of things matter as well you know at the end of the day you know evidence-based practice we can talk all day long because we know it's important but it would be good going forward that there's kind of some tangible things to hang on to that you know this study actually found that it made a difference to these people's outcomes or how they engage I think those two things are kind of you know more services or involvement some some, some more data I don't know if it does exist it might do yeah okay so I was reading this book which is dual language development and disorders um so that's by Joanne Paradis and it's got a whole chapter about the language culture connection and it just has a bit um, at the end of that chapter about how really important it is to um, understand culture and embed culture into practice so I'm just going to read a bit out now um, so it says, time and attention need to be given to developing intervention strategies that do not contravene children's or their parents' cultural norms. Intervention with children with language impairment is the language-based activity. Because language is rooted in culture, it is also a culture-based activity. Culturally inappropriate requests in non-mainstream homes are not likely to be met. and Moreover, they reveal an insensitivity that will erode the clinical relationship. They disrupt natural parent-children interactions and over time they risk contributing to cultural loss. So I think that just really goes to show, you know, there is obviously evidence out there um, that shows that we really need to be thinking about culture when we work with clients. And if we make um, suggestions for intervention that is not culturally relevant to the client, then um, that they just might not actually do the um, intervention they might not carry out their intervention so unless we are embedding culture into clinical practice into um, you know what we're asking the clients to do then you know it might even be quite pointless what we're trying to do anyway because if it's not culturally relevant to them they might just not comply and we will put the reference for that book on our twitter um, for anyone who's interested so um does anybody have any sort of final roundup comments that they want to share? Yeah, I've got some thoughts. Um, I think it really, I, I do think that there are some things that as a profession, it's okay to acknowledge that are our blind spots um, and we don't necessarily have the expertise on. Um, and that's, so I think it's um, one way forward is possibly to have a more multidisciplinary approach to how speech and language therapists are taught and trained. So, you know, can we not have 
kind of a module that's kind of got input from sociology and some anthropology and some just just some grounding in terms of a contextual understanding of the communities we seek to serve in the society that we are going to be working in um, and I think that that could possibly one be one way one way forward in acknowledging that at the moment the majority of our professors lecturers do not have the skills to do this teaching that's the just a, just a fr frank truth of it they might have you know they might be nice people and and, and all the rest of it, but they don't have the skills to do it, which is why they're not doing it and it's not happening. And I think we've waited long enough um, for it to sort of be developed and, 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 and it just hasn't happened. So something needs to change, clearly. Um, I think the other thing would be from, you know, I'm not, I don't teach, I don't do anything with it within the university, but I think as a, as a speech and language therapist within a service, I think I also have a role to play in, in terms of making sure that the, the student experience is, is a better one. Um, and so I think we need to also be having these conversations within our places of work and within the services in which we operate and acknowledging that our white colleagues are going to have some gaps in, in terms of their um, ability to be effective peers sometimes. Um, and knowing that we, um, within acknowledging our own position of power and, 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 and authority within th that workplace. I think it's really important to um, engage with clinicians that are out there. There are, there, no, there's still a lot of work to do, but there are a lot of BAME speech and language therapists now. And I think universities need to engage, not just with people that are experts in conditions to come in and be guest speakers, but actually to, to get speech and language therapists that work with um, diverse client groups or are from BAME backgrounds to come in and talk to students about the experience, about their work, about their you know the cultural aspects of what they do I don't I don't see why it doesn't have to be all about kind of the, the academic element of bringing people in I think it should be much more about the workforce and students getting to know understand the workforce and how you know how that can contribute to to, to kind of their understanding of culture so yeah yeah, I was just thinking about um, placements, actually, you know, talking about my experience on placement um, earlier on. Um, I mean, I guess there's a bit of a problem when, um, you know, your placement supervisor might tell you to do something that is not um, culturally appropriate. And um, I guess that comes down to, you know, we need to be educated at universities so that we can, you know, deal with these situations when they arise in placement. But then I guess you also need to be able to have um, someone at the university that you can talk to about things that you think may be culturally inappropriate that have happened on placement as well. I think that's completely a really good point about placement. Um, when we were at university, we had something called PPDG groups where we would break in and talk about our experiences on placement. And oftentimes that was our given space to talk about any issues there. But talking about experiences in terms of diversity, being the only person of color in the room is really uncomfortable so even if I experienced it I wasn't going to share it with my peers who definitely could not relate to what I've been through and especially with people who I didn't know as well so I always felt like even though university was giving us a space to do that it should have been more of a facilitated conversation because that's not a comfortable space to be in and I don't want to be a token representative person of color so it would have been more helpful if that been university taking more of a leadership role and being willing to lead that conversation rather than hey sit in a room and talk about your experience on placement just going to round up on that note um we're going to be carrying on these conversations next week and we're definitely going to pull out um some of the really vital points that everybody today has made so thank you again so much sharon mariam and mahreen for joining us today we really appreciate it um really really appreciate your views um so today we spoke around the education of cultural competency why it's important uh, why it's necessary and how we think 
um, there needs to be a better approach to the teaching of cultural competency, competency at university um, and sort of the outcomes from that. Next week, we'll continue the conversation and move it on to uh, that in practice in the workplace. What does cultural competency look like when it's implemented right? Um, and what does what are the barriers to um, being a culturally competent uh, practitioner uh, and a speech therapist? Be sure to follow our Twitter and our Instagram SLT Time at SLT Time SLT Time to keep up to date with new episode releases. And that's the SLT for today.